Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. I'm wearing my SpaceX shirt today in honor of Captain Kirk going into outer space. (laughs) You know, I got this shirt. Kenneth Clark's sister-in-law is head of astronaut training or a large part of astronaut training at NASA. They loaned her to SpaceX she got the shirt for Kenneth, and Kenneth got one for me. I feel like it's more of a uniform, though, than a shirt, because if they give you the uniform, you're on the team. And, and while Captain Kirk went up with Blue Origin, you know, we're not holding that against him. So uh, that's why I'm wearing the shirt today. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, just this place. We're dealing with tough subjects today, and, you know, my desire is that for Jesus to speak, not me, and that what we hear uh, will be faithful to do. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a very political world, isn't it? Everything's political these days, and it has us very divided. Everybody's got a political opinion, and with social media, everybody has the ability to share their opinion, and those opinions become uh, so uh, hardwired that uh, it's difficult for us to come off of them, even when those things become very divisive. And so, you know, it's politicized. Do I wear a mask, uh, vaccines, even the price of gas? Everything is political these days. And consequently, uh, you know, you name it, and politics are involved in it. You know, depending on your perspective, the government is either the Antichrist trying to give us the mark of the beast or the government is the Messiah that's going to deliver us from poverty and uh, global warming or whatever. And, you know, and so as a result of that, we become very divided. And the question for us as a church is, where do we fit? How do we respond? What's our, what's our calling in this? And so we pick up the book of Romans. We're reading through Romans and everything's going fine. And now we come to Romans 13. And I've got to tell you in advance, if you have some hardwired political opinions this morning, you're going to hate Romans 13. So let's get our Bibles out. Let's turn our, our devices on. Let's look at Romans 13. Paul has been talking about living out grace, Romans chapter 12. And if you sort of back up and look at Romans as a whole, chapters 1 through 11 are about the theology of grace, and then chapters 12 through 16 are about living out that grace. So 1 through 11 is the theology of grace, 12 through 16 is the biology of grace. So how do I live out? If I'm saved by grace through faith, how do I live that out? And he begins to talk about how we live graciously. And then last time, we looked at Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, where it gets really tough because he talks about being gracious with people who have hurt you. And so forgiveness becomes one of those core elements and and just responding in grace and love. Man, that, that really begins to get difficult. But then in Romans 13, starting in verse 1, he picks up the issue of where do we respond politically and how do we deal with that? And I've got to tell you, this is going to be tough because Paul is going to tell us that we are to submit to those in authority over us. And... I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's fine as long as the guy I'm submitting to is my guy. We're all fine with submitting to those in authority over us as long as it's our guy. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say submit to those in authority over us as long as they share our political perspective or opinion. It says submit to those in authority over us, period, whether he's your guy or not. And so now all of a sudden it's something that I have to deal with. 
And it's hard to accept. And if you don't accept it, you won't do it. You'll just get mad at me for telling you about it. (laughs) So I began to wrestle with this. And I was like, you know, our political positions have become so calcified. And our stance has become so entrenched. And we've become so hardwired in what we think is appropriate. That we're not going to be able to, to read Romans 13 and accept it. And if we don't accept it, we won't do it. So what can we talk about to help us to understand it? And I think it became important for me to kind of go back to some of those core things. And so before we dive into Romans 13, I want to remind us of three governing principles, okay? And the first principle is this, the principle of purpose. What are we here for? We can't ever forget that question. God, what am I here for? Is my calling cultural change? Is that why you've put us here? And, I, and you know, I, I know sometimes it feels that way. It feels like if we don't do something about this culture, we're going to lose America. And that's a very real fear for a lot of people. America is going a direction we never thought it would be. And so uh, we've got to do something. And it feels as if uh, our calling then becomes cultural change. Years ago, I read this brilliant book by a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, It was called Christ and Culture. And in it, he talks about the relationship of the church and culture. And he basically came up with five ways the church relates to culture. The first is Christ over culture. And that would be uh, something akin to the Roman Catholic Church during the, the Middle Ages, where it was a theocracy and the church sort of held sway over governing officials. That's Christ over culture. The other is Christ in culture and paradox. And that that idea comes out of the Lutheran movement of the Reformation where they sort of viewed culture and and, uh, and church uh, sort of in this paradoxical relationship with one another. And then there is the liberal movement that said, no, 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 what we need to do is embrace culture. And so it became Christ of culture. And so when we hold convictions that are counter to what the culture would want us to hold, we'll abandon those convictions in order for us to embrace embrace culture. And then the opposite of that would be the fundamentalist approach, which is Christ against culture. And so culture is is this great evil and the Amish and the Mennonite and, and that perspective of I've got to separate myself from culture because we're against culture. And then that final phase would be Christ transforming culture. And maybe that's the idea more uh, that we see today among the evangelicals. And if you ask the average church guy, okay, which of these do you think best describes the relationship of the church to culture? Most would probably say that the relationship that the church should have with culture is our job is to transform culture. But be careful because that's a trap. You see, the book asks the question, which of these best represents the church's purpose with culture? And if those are our five options, then the answer is fairly easy. Our calling is to transform culture. But here's what we miss, because that's a trap question. The church never asked that question. The Bible never asked that question. In fact, the word culture, and I've got a fairly robust Bible search program in my office, and I can search literally, you name the translation, I can search it. I searched them all. The word culture, it does not occur in any translation at any time ever. That word is never used in any Bible that I sourced, which is crazy. I mean, it shows up in the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible, but that's the only place that it shows up. Why is that? Well, the church never set out to change culture. 
They never set out to change culture. The church set out to build a kingdom, and that's the fundamental difference. We're kingdom builders, not cultural warriors. And Jesus repeatedly says this in John 18, 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this earth. Um, In Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Uh, And maybe that's why the church talks a little about culture, because they were so focused on kingdom. So here's our purpose. I mean, remember, we've got to always head back up and ask ourselves, why am I here? Here's our purpose. Matthew, Matthew 28, 19. What's the Bible say? It says, go therefore and make disciples. Go therefore and make disciples. That's our purpose. See, here's the thing. If cultural change is the mission of the church, then the means by which that change occurs has to be power. And so let's talk about that. That's the second governing principle, the concept of power, the principle of power. You see, there are two similar words in the Greek that often translate power. The first is the word dunamis. Just think of the word dynamite, okay? That's raw, exerted power. The other word is exousia, and that's the word for authority, Okay, And so you have these two competing ideas. Tony Evans, I was listening to him at last year's Southern Baptist Convention. Just a brilliant guy. You you guys listen to Tony Evans? You need to podcast Tony Evans. He was talking about this very thing, and Tony Evans being a black pastor is dealing with the racial issues in America from a slightly different perspective. And man, he's right on topic on it. He says that um, it's all about power and authority. He says in a football game, you have these players who wear the uniform and they have power. You know, you watch those games. I was watching those games yesterday, and I'm watching these monsters uh, for Auburn or LSU or Alabama, you know. And these guys are massive. They're like freaks of nature. You know, all these dads are like, yeah, my son, I think he's going to play pro football. I'm like, he's only 5'6", dude. I mean, just go look. Go stand on the sideline and look. Everybody else looks like a midget. These guys are Goliath, and they have power. I mean, if I went across from one of those guys, he would just stomp me down and step on my face and just do whatever he wanted to do. That's power. And Evan says the guys wearing the uniforms, they've got power. They're either fast or they're strong or they're big or they're all of the above. He said, but there's another group of guys out there on the field. They don't wear the uniform. They wear the stripes. And they don't have power, dunamis. They have authority. Exousia. And he said, those guys may not be able to run over you, but they can take you out of the game. That's authority. And here's what we don't don't understand. We don't have the power. We're not wearing the jersey. The church is refereeing the game. We wear the stripes. We have authority. You see, the world relies on power. I mean, Jesus described it like this. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those, who are exor- that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, so they control them. And their great men exercise authority, but that's the idea of power there. They exercise control over them. And so it's all about power and control. 
And that's what politicians do. That's what the whole process is made up of. They're all about, and some guys are like, no, I'm about the, the needs of my constituency. And that's true, but you can't get the needs of your constituency done without exercising some form of power in, in terms of, of democratic society. It's, it's not the raw exercise of power that you would see of Putin over the Soviet, over, the, over Russia, but it's more of an influence style power. And so the process is always about gaining influence so that I can have power so that I can accomplish whatever purpose I have. It's always about power. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about. And don't think for a minute that they won't manipulate you in order to stay in power and never believe that they weren't, aren't willing to manipulate the church too. Chuck Colson was one of the brightest minds in the evangelical church. I'm so sad that he went to heaven. But during the Nixon administration, he was the special counsel to President Nixon. They called him Nixon's hatchet man. And he got caught up in the Watergate scandal. He ultimately went to prison for obstruction of justice. And while in prison, he came to a glorious faith in Christ. Changed his life. He formed prison fellowship coming out of that. But I was listening to him one time at a conference, and he was talking about his days with Nixon. And he said, Nixon used to invite these pastors into the White House, and he would awe them with the Oval Office, you know. And you could just see these pastors come in, and there were stars in their eyes, you know. And Nixon was, would, would overwhelm them with the trappings of power and success. And these guys would just buy into it. And then he'd have his picture made with them, and, you know, picture made so they could go home and put it on their wall so that everybody could see that how close they are to the president who would never remember their name. And uh, Colson said, as soon as those guys would walk out, Nixon would turn to his aides and go, what a bunch of idiots. Man, what a bunch of go. It's so easy to manipulate those guys. Don't think for a minute they won't do that. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. One time I got an invitation to go see the governor of Louisiana. Come have dinner with the governor at Christmas time. I'm like, I didn't even know he knew me. You know? How cool is this, Amy? We're going to the governor's mansion. We're going to have dinner with the governor. He must have heard about us. <laughs> it's so goofy what we think. You know, and I've analyzed some of my thinking on that is why I, th I thought that was going to be such a cool thing. So I go down to the Baton Rouge and I go to the mansion and, you know, I get through security and I go in and I'm in this room and all of a sudden I look up and there's probably a hundred, hundred plus pastors in this room. And I'm like, maybe we aren't so special. Maybe he invited everybody. And our, it was just our turn. And there wasn't any dinner to sit down to or anything. There were basically some of those hot pan trays with a little plate, and you could put, you know, your, your beanie weenies on it or whatever it was, your, your little smokies, and you could eat your snack food with your toothpick while you stood around. And the governor was back in this room somewhere, sort of like a creepy version of the Godfather meets Santa Claus, and, and everybody's lined up to walk into that room and get their picture made with the governor so they could hang it on their office when they get back home and show everybody how important they are. I looked around at Amy and I said, let's get out of here. And uh, she said, I am with you. They said, wait, 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 you've got an ornament. You got so I have this wonderful Christmas ornament somewhere in a box in my house of our trip to the governor's mansion. 
And I thought about that, and I thought, why was I so fascinated with that? And, and I think it comes down to this, and I hate to admit it, and I would never articulate it this way, but it's almost as if I had this idea that if I knew the governor and had dinner with the governor, then I could somehow borrow his power, and that by virtue of the fact that I'm close to a powerful man, that would somehow make me more powerful. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. That's the only thing I can think of. And then I realized politicians never share their power. They don't loan their power out. They're constantly seeking to to draw power from other people. Why am I there? Because I'm a pastor and there's a few people who listen to me talk and maybe something I say might bend you toward him. And that's what's going on. Power is the driving force behind the world. The church doesn't rely on power. It relies on authority. I mean, let's go back to Mark 10, 42. Rulers lord it over through power. You got that? But look at the next verse, verse 43. But it is not that way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be a slave of all. In other words, in this earthly kingdom, we're powerless. We don't have any power. I don't have any power. But we have authority. And it's the authority that allows us to fulfill our purpose. You know, I talked about what's our purpose, Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19. And we always talk about that. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's our purpose. There's no question about that. But we always skip the means by which that purpose is achieved, which is verse 18. So instead of just looking at Matthew 28, 19, let's back up and look at 18 because here's what it says. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who is the authority? Jesus. And his presence with us. Remember the end of Matthew 28, 19. And lo, I am with you always by virtue of the fact that I am present with Christ. I walk in his authority. Now, here's what happens. Let's go back to Tony Evans' football analogy. Tony Evans says that what's happening in the church today is these guys who ought to be wearing the stripes and walking in authority are taking off the stripes and putting on the uniform. And the minute you take off the stripes and you put on the uniform, you exchange authority for power. And the minute you exchange authority for power, you lose your authority. Can you imagine in a football game if the referees started wearing one team's jersey? What happens to their authority? They have none. And they no longer have the ability to exercise that over the game. And anytime the church tries to use power, this world has to offer its sacrifices, its authority. And we're trading authority for power. And trading authority for power is a tragic mistake. And so if our purpose is kingdom building... And if the means by which we do that is authority, not power, then that affects our priorities, which is that third principle I want us to go to before we walk down through Romans 13, and that's the principle of priority. You see, here's my priority. If my purpose is to make disciples, and the means by which I do that is the authority of Christ in my life, then my priority is to live the kind of life and to say the kinds of things that would lift Jesus up. Because Jesus said, if I'll be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. And so my calling is not to become some sort of cultural warrior. My calling is to lift up Christ. 
You say, does that mean we can't speak into cultural concerns? Obviously, we need to bring truth into every conversation. But truth is always delivered with grace. It's always mitigated with grace. Jesus always spoke the truth, but He was so gracious. That, that encounter with the woman at the well is a great example of that. He, he runs into this Samaritan woman at the well, and He talks to her, and she's like, what are you doing talking to me? I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. He's like, he's like, give me some water. She's like, the well's deep. You don't have anything. He said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water, because the kind of water I can give you, you'll never thirst again. She's like, man, that's the kind of water I need. Give me some of that. You remember how the story goes? The very next thing, what does Jesus say? He says, go call your husband. <laughs> Needle scratching, you know, freeze frame. You know why? Because she'd had five husbands. And the guy she was living with wasn't her husband. This is a this is a she woman with a he weakness. She's got man problems. And Jesus speaks truth into that. He doesn't dodge it. He speaks truth into it. But you know what she does? She starts to quiver. I can hear a quiver in her voice. She goes, uh, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And what does she do? She says, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, our, our guys say that we should always worship at this mountain, but your guys say we should always worship at that mountain. Which, where, where do you think we ought to worship? Why is she doing that? She don't want to talk about husbands and men. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus let it go. He let her go. He didn't do some wrestling move on her, you know, and throw her to the canvas and lay on her and say, you need to repent. You need to repent. Do what I say. He let her go. Something happened in her life because later on she brought the whole village back to him, but he let her go. That's grace. I mean, we speak truth, but we always do it in love. Here's an example. We hold to the right to life. We push for the, the rights of unborn babies. But in the process of pushing this truth, we have to remember that real people are involved in real struggles. And we can't forget the women involved in the decision and the desperation that they feel in that moment. And we can't, remit, we can't forget that these are real people in real time. It's not just a political perspective. It's not just a political position. It's a real human being. And the, and the decisions that they make, even when the moms make the wrong decision and they abort their baby, they struggle with that. Y'all, I had a lady in my church in her mid-80s. Her and her husband were farmers, deeply respected in the community. They had this massive sprawling farm. And when I knew her, they had sold off most of the farm and it had become houses, you know, but there was still that beautiful old white farmhouse on that corner with the little orchard still going in the back. And she had had back surgery and she was in a, a cast from here to here, a big old plastic thing. And I went over to see her and she was trying to pick some peaches off out of her orchard and she was tired and hurting. So she went in and she said, can I lay down? I said, yeah, go ahead. So I'm sitting beside her bed and she's laying there and she starts to cry. I wasn't prepared for that. This, this is a person who was so well known in the community that they named an elementary school after her. She starts to cry. And she said, Bill, I need to tell you something that I haven't told anybody else. And I, this is years and years ago, so she's long gone with the Lord. But she said, back in the 1930s, my husband and I had four boys, 
and we were hurting. We didn't know how we could. This is the middle of the Great Depression. We didn't know how we were going to feed those boys. And I got pregnant, and we didn't know what to do. We thought if we had one more, one more mouth, we're going to lose a boy. We're going to lose it all. She's just bawling. She said, so I, I went in and they took my baby's life. And she's, by now she's just shaking, weeping, and she says, he would have been 60 this year. Man. You know, truth was in that room because she was dealing with the truth that was in that room. My job, I wanted to be sure Grace was there with it. And so I walked her back to the cross. And I said, we remember the cross. And we remember that all the sins I ever did and all the sins I do and all the sins I'm going to do went with Jesus to the cross. And I am forgiven and you're forgiven. And man, as she began to struggle to process that, you could just feel something lift. In that moment, she wasn't a political position. That's what we forget. We become so politicized, we forget that there are human lives involved and that she's a real person. And so these three principles have to govern our understanding of behavior. I have to remember my purpose. I I can't sacrifice spiritual authority for man's power, and my priorities have to be grace and redemption driven. Now, with those in mind, let's walk quickly through Romans 13. Because only now will it make sense. Verse 1, let every person be in subject to the governing authorities. So here's principle number one, submit to governing authorities. And this is, this is one of those verses, it's like, I don't like what that says. So, you know, as a preacher, you always want to do this little tap dance around it and go, no, nah, it doesn't say that. It says this. So we can sort of dance around this verse and pretend it didn't say what it really says. The problem is I've got to deal with Titus 3.1. Remind them to be in subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. I have to deal with 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority. And I know what you're thinking right now. Seriously? But our leaders, our leaders are Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. AOC. Surely, that's not who you're talking about. You know who was in charge when Paul said, wrote these words? A maniacal, insane dictator named Nero. Nero would ultimately cut off Paul's head on the Ostian Way outside the city of Rome. Nero was, was the kind of guy, he would throw Christians to lions. He blamed the burning of Rome on the church. He would dip... Human beings, Christians, in pitch, oil, fix them to posts and set them on fire to light his gardens by night. I told you this isn't easy. Secondly, God establishes authority, verse 1, that for there is no authority except by God's appointment and the authority that exists have been instituted by God. In other words, we get the leadership we deserve. <laughs> Number three, when we resist governing authority, we are resisting God. 
So the person who resists such authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this. When the Jewish council told Peter and John, stop speaking about Jesus, they said to the Jewish council, who was the authority at that time, you determine what's best. Do we listen to man or do we listen to God? Because God gave us the Great Commission, and we're going to talk about Jesus whether you like it or not. So there's always a time. If you're hiding Jews in your home in 1943, and the Nazis beat on the door and say, are there any Jews here? In that time, it's appropriate to disobey government. If you live in Myanmar and the governing authority says, you are not to gather together and talk about Jesus and you do it anyway, you are called to defy that decree. Okay, there are obvious exceptions. If you're in Afghanistan right now and you're a believer Your choice is, do I stay home? Do I meet and die? That's their choice. Piper said something to this effect. He said, isn't it interesting that in America, we're trying to decide, do I go to Little League or do I go to church? But in Afghanistan, they're deciding, do I live or do I die? Here's the thing. When government or any other authority demands that you do what God says not to do or tries to prevent you from doing what God said to do, then you do what God says. The rest of the time, you submit to their authority. Because it's all about the kingdom. This is their kingdom. We aren't of their kingdom. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but, they have, uh, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed, look at this, they were strangers and aliens on the earth. When you're an alien, that's us, we're vagabonds and gypsies. And when you're an alien or a stranger and you're in a foreign land, what do you do? You obey the laws of the land. Number four, government is good. For rulers uh, cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. Do you desire not to fear authority? Do good and you'll receive its con, uh, commendation. You know, it's hard for me to admit this, but government is a good thing designed by God. Verse 4, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear, for it does not bear the sword in vain. It's God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. So it's about civilization, civility, protection, defense, all of that. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of the authorities, but also because of your conscience. Now, here's the point. Ready? Number five, do the small stuff so you can do the main thing. That's what it comes back down to. Look at verse six. For this reason, you also pay your taxes. I think this was the whole point. I think there were a group of Christians there going, look, we're not of this kingdom. We shouldn't have to obey the laws of this kingdom, and we shouldn't have to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, Jesus has already settled this. Look at Luke chapter 20, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery, that is Jesus, and said to them, show me a denarius. That's their coin. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. It's brilliant. Jesus said the coin bears the image of Caesar. Give it back to him. Your soul bears the image of God. Give that back to him. Do you see the powerful principle of the two kingdoms? The things of this earth are part of the kingdoms of this earth. So as strangers, we obey the rules of this kingdom. Verse 7, pay everyone what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Because here it is. If you get all tangled up in taxes and civil disobedience, then how will you ever fulfill your purpose? 
Here's what he's saying, church, and we've got to hear this. Do the small things so you can do the main thing. This is why I started with purpose, priority, and power. Because we've forgotten what the main thing is. Remember, the goal is the gospel. And when we forget that and we get wrapped up in politics, we start vying for the power at the expense of the authority and we lose the ability to share the gospel. Because here's why, and listen to me. People get so mad about your politics that they won't listen to your gospel. And you become offensive for the wrong reason. And that's what the core of the problem is. We are becoming offensive for the wrong reason. The only offense the church should offer this world is the cross of Christ. That's the only offense. And that's offensive enough. The fact that God designed you for His purpose, that your sin has ruined what God intended for you and it has cut you off and separated you and that God loved you enough that Jesus went to the cross to die for you and took the full punishment of your sin upon himself so that you could be redeemed from sin and have a life that's characterized by forgiveness, purpose, and eternal life in heaven with Jesus. That's the core of the gospel. And let me tell you something, that's offensive enough. Let's make that the only offense. Let's don't make all these other things part of our offense so they've got to get over my politics to get to my Jesus. We've got to remember our purpose. So try to stop making enemies with your politics so you can make disciples with the gospel. That's what it's all about. We are kingdom builders, not social warriors. And here's the great thing. <laughs> here's the great thing. Turns out that when you build the kingdom of God, you change the culture. It's a real weird paradox. If I set out to change the culture, I can't do it because i got to use power to do it. Ooh, do what I say. Believe what I believe. But if I build the kingdom of God, and I say, hey man, here's Jesus. I'm one beggar showing another beggar where I found bread. And I say, here's some bread. That beggar goes, man, I needed that. And you know what he does? He goes and finds another beggar, and he says, here's some bread. I found it over there. And he, you know what he does? Those guys do. They go find another one, and they go find another one, and they go find another one. And before you know it, all of these beggars that have found bread in Jesus have had their lives forever changed. And once their lives get forever changed, guess what happens? Culture changes. The church never set out to change culture. You can't find the word in any Bible. The church set out to build a kingdom, and in the process of building the kingdom, they changed their culture. Within 300 years of Paul landing in Rome, Christianity was the dominant spiritual force in the Roman world. And they didn't for one second try to do it through political process. We're kingdom builders, not social warriors. So see them as Jesus saw them, speak the truth that Jesus spoke, and give the grace that Jesus gave. To do that, here's our commitment. Let's get together right now. We're going to make this commitment. Father, we will be about your business. We're going to seek to build kingdoms. The kingdom of heaven. So use us in that regard. And let the only offense of my life be the cross of Jesus. Let him alone be the stumbling block and the stone of offense. 
I pray that our politics wouldn't be the offense, that our values, our ethics, or our lifestyle, none of that would be the offense, that only Jesus, so that when we share Jesus in a crystal clear and clarion way, that they are confronted with the gospel and they deal only with that. And so we, we lay the rest of that down. Father, we'll still speak truth, but we're going to speak it in love. That's our commitment to you today. Father, I pray for those that need Christ today, that this would be their day of salvation, that they would discover that you satisfied the complete requirements of righteousness on the cross. You can't add anything to that. And that rather than running from you with their sin, they would run to you with their sin and be forever changed. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.